Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Really quickly, as we took communion, I was thinking about a Prairie View emergency that most of you didn't see this morning. Uh, We were preparing communion and realized that we did not have enough communion cups. And so we were thinking, what in the world are we going to do? There's nowhere open that sells communion cups. So we got on the phone, called Christ Community Church down the street, 131st in Allisonville, and they let us have some communion cups. So next time you're driving past Christ Community Church, give them a honk and a wave and thank them for allowing us to take communion this morning. Now, last week, the Gospel of Mark started to give us a rapid fire answer to the question that all four Gospels were written to address. And that question is. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And according to Mark, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's the one prophets looked forward to, the one John the Baptist prepared the way for, the one the Holy Spirit descended upon, the one with whom the Father was well pleased, the one Satan unsuccessfully tempted, the one disciples followed. The one who amazed crowds, the one who demons obeyed, the one who healed the sick, and the one who cleansed lepers. It's a lot to take in, isn't it? You put it all together, that's why Mark starts his gospel by saying that Jesus is not just some good news. He is the good news. And Mark writes about all this with an incredible sense of urgency. And Jesus preaches with a sense of urgency as well. Jesus preaches that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and his hearers must repent of their sin and believe in the gospel. And he used one of Mark's favorite words, they should do it immediately. And all those things are still true today. Jesus is still everything Mark said he is in chapter 1. And even better yet, he's the Messiah who was crucified to reconcile sinners to God. The one raised from the dead, the one who ascended to the Father's right hand, and the one who one day will return. And so like the crowds who heard Jesus' first sermon, we too are called to repent and believe in the gospel. And we too should do it immediately. Life is short. Jesus could return at any moment. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. But today we move ahead to chapter 2, and a few verses from chapter 3 as well. And in these passages, we're going to read about four different confrontations Jesus had with influential fellow Jewish religious leaders of his day. It all happens in the vicinity of Capernaum, the city that would become Jesus' home base of sorts during his public ministry. And we'll ultimately see from these passages that the real sticking point between Jesus and the religious leaders is the question of Jesus's authority. And we'll discuss our own understanding of and our own relationship to Jesus's authority as well. So open up to Mark chapter two, verse one. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take one home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together to sing and to take communion. Thanks to our brothers and sisters down the street at Christ Community Church. I pray you'd be with them in their service, be with them as they took communion as well. 
Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word preached, the opportunity to give, the opportunity to pray, and the opportunity to just be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I pray that this time together would be not just encouraging and beneficial to us, but most of all, it would be glorifying to you. I pray that as we worship in this nice, warm building, that you would be with those who are not in a nice, warm building this morning. I ask you to care for those who need help in this moment. And Father, I pray that our regular worship here in this building, here at this church, would not just be a habit or a routine, but that every single Sunday when people drive by and see cars in the parking lot, that somehow, some way, even in a roundabout way, they would be reminded of how seriously we take our faith in your Son. And if they do not believe in your Son, I pray that driving past our church or driving past a different church and seeing people there worshiping you on a Sunday morning would somehow encourage them and convict them and challenge them to rethink who you are and to rethink your son's authority, which we'll talk about today. Again, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. We ask you to be with us as we hear from your word. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So the first confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders starts when a group of men brings their paralyzed friend to be healed. And it's worth noting that these four men go to great lengths to get their friend there. They carry him the whole way. They fight through the crowd. And when they see how packed it is, they get on the roof and perform a small act of vandalism, all so that their friend can be in Jesus' presence, all so their friend can be healed. Now, these great lengths they go to tell us something about the paralytic's desperation. You don't put in all that work to see Jesus if you have other options for healing, other things you can try. But it also tells us something about the paralytics, 
and the paralytic's friends faith and confidence in Christ to go all that way. But then after all that work, when Jesus sees the paralyzed man, he doesn't help him walk, at least not at first. Instead, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, what gives? The friends may have been disappointed. The paralyzed man may have been discouraged. After all that work, they all thought for sure that he'd be walking home, and yet he's still laying here paralyzed. But we know the story isn't over yet. Meanwhile, the scribes present were scandalized by Jesus' words. Your sins are forgiven. The scribes were keepers, guardians, defenders, teachers, and curators of the Old Testament law. They knew better than anyone that only God can forgive sins. And for a man to claim that power and authority for himself is an act of blasphemy. They could have turned to a passage like Isaiah 43, verse 25. God says there, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Only God has that kind of authority. So in a way, the scribes are right. It really is blasphemy for a man to claim that kind of power. But here's how the scribes are wrong. It's not blasphemy when Jesus does it. Because Jesus is not just another ordinary man. He is God in the flesh. And he proves his divine power and his divine authority when he turns his attention back to that paralyzed man, commands him to get up, and the man starts walking. Jesus gives the paralytic something far better than a working pair of legs. He gives him the forgiveness of sins. But the fact that the paralytic is now walking proves to the scribes And proves to everyone else around that Jesus really does have divine power and divine authority. He really can forgive sins. Now the people, of course, are amazed. Between this and everything Jesus did in chapter 1 last week, his authority is pretty obvious. The proof is in the pudding. Surely there's no way the religious leaders can possibly deny Jesus' authority after seeing that paralyzed man walk. Right? We'll pick up in verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So once again, Jesus faces opposition from the religious leaders. But this time it's from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a popular group 
in their day. They were admired and respected for how seriously they observed the Old Testament law, especially in the areas of purity and cleanliness. Many of the other Jewish religious leaders, such as the Sadducees, another group mentioned in the New Testament, were sometimes seen as moral compromisers, but not the Pharisees. The Pharisees stood strong. The Pharisees took the law seriously. However, even though the Pharisees were respected, they were also susceptible to the sins of pride and arrogance. The Pharisees had a knack for feeling holier than thou and not exactly attempting to hide it. And like the scribes were in verses 1 through 12, the Pharisees were confused at best by how Jesus did or didn't do things the way they expected him to. The scribes were bothered by Jesus' claim to forgive sins. The Pharisees were bothered by the company that Jesus kept. He called Levi the tax collector, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lowest of scoundrels in his day to follow him. But then as if that's not bad enough, Jesus then had the audacity to share a meal with other tax collectors in Levi's home. That's one of the most intimate showings of fellowship and solidarity that you could have in the ancient world. To recline at table in someone's own house. So the Pharisees looked at this and believed this would make Jesus impure, unclean. But then Jesus reminds them of what God sent him to do. He reminds them of the power, the authority, and the mission that the Father gave to him. Jesus was sent to call people like these, tax collectors and sinners, to faith and repentance. He was sent to offer them the same forgiveness of sins, the same healing he offered to that paralyzed man in verses 1 through 12. And so rather than Jesus being tainted by the presence of tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners can be cleansed by the presence of Jesus. That's because Jesus has a kind of power and a kind of authority that the Pharisees don't. So the point is that Jesus can do things and say things that the Jewish religious leaders and you and I can't do and can't say. That's because Jesus has a kind of power and authority that the Jewish religious leaders and you and I don't. The crowd seem to recognize this. The paralyzed man and his friends seem to recognize this. Levi seems to recognize this. Well, the scribes and Pharisees recognize it. Jump forward to verse 23. We'll come back to verses 18 through 22. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So this time, confrontation number three. The Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath by allowing his disciples to collect food. And once again, the religious leaders may have a kind of point. The Sabbath is intended to be a day of rest for mankind because God rested on the seventh day of creation. And collecting food could have been seen as a form of work. But once again, the religious leaders fail to recognize that Jesus' power and Jesus' authority allow him to do things and say things that they can't. Jesus reminds them that once upon a time in the Old Testament, King David appeared to break the Old Testament law when he ate bread that was reserved for priests. And Jesus' power and Jesus' authority far surpass David's. So while the Pharisees may understand the letter of the law, they do not understand the spirit of the law. Jesus teaches them that the laws concerning the Sabbath were not given by God to make his people suffer. Rather, they were given for his people to flourish. And in this case, in David's case, when his disciples were hungry, their well-being takes precedence over the Pharisees' interpretation. The point is that the religious leaders can't have two things at once. They can't insist that they are the true worshipers of God while rejecting the obvious power and authority of God that rests within Jesus. And yet that's what they continue to do. And in fact, their opposition has only gotten stronger with each passage that we've read. In verses 1 through 12, the scribes questioned Jesus in their hearts, but they didn't say it out loud. In verses 13 through 17, the Pharisees made their concerns a little more public, vocally questioning the disciples. And then in verses 23 through 28, they took the next step by confronting Jesus directly. Each confrontation, the tension gets a little higher. The religious leader's opposition becomes a little stronger. And by the time we get to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, their opposition to Jesus reaches a fever pitch. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So the religious leaders have progressed from quiet grumbling to interrogating the disciples to picking a fight with Jesus. But now they go even farther. They're intentionally watching. They are waiting for Jesus to mess up. They're staking him out in hopes that he will mess up. 
But once again, Jesus does not allow the Pharisees to dictate what he says and what he does, or how he says it and how he does it. He once again asserts and displays his divine power and his divine authority by healing that man with a withered hand. Of course, by now, the religious leaders are seething with anger. They're so desperate to get rid of Jesus that they begin to consult with the Herodians, traditionally their enemies, about how to destroy him once and for all. So by now, the theme of these passages is clear. Jesus has divine power and divine authority that the religious leaders don't have. But the religious leaders refuse to acknowledge it. Now, what's the reason for that? Where does this conflict come from? How is it, why is it that the people who supposedly know God so well, know God better than anybody else around, are consistently and stubbornly and willfully ignorant of the very presence of God right before their very eyes? Why is that? Go back to verse 18 of Mark chapter 2. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This time, the people... Not the religious leaders, just the people come to Jesus with a question. They notice that Jesus and his disciples do not fast when the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees are. Why don't they fast? Well, Jesus tells them that one day his disciples will fast. The day when he is taken away from them after his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. But that time isn't yet. Fasting is for times of mourning, times of grief. But for the disciples, being in Jesus' presence at that moment is a time of joy, a time of celebration. It's not the time to fast yet. But look again at verses 21 and 22. Those verses about repairing old clothes and how to properly keep your wine, which many of us would be very interested to know more about. Well, Jesus isn't just giving some helpful sewing techniques. He's not enforcing the Capernaum Health Department's standards for safe wine storage. He's teaching the people that with his arrival, something new has come. And that something new cannot be contained within the old. The Old Testament law that the scribes and Pharisees were so passionate about, that they were so dedicated to, it was a good gift of God. It had its purpose, it's had its place, and in many ways is still helpful for Jesus' disciples, including us today. 
However, Jesus is better than the Old Testament law. He fulfills it perfectly and has the power and authority to do things it could not do. Jesus can forgive sins in a way the Old Testament law could not. Jesus can cleanse the unclean in a way the Old Testament law could not. And Jesus can give mankind a kind of rest that the Old Testament law could not. This is what the religious leaders could not and would not acknowledge. They wanted to hold on to the old garment and the old wineskins. And they are rejecting the arrival of the new cloth and the new wine. They're rejecting Jesus himself. So again, ultimately, all of these stories come back to the religious leader's response to Jesus' authority. And now as we think about ourselves, I have to ask, how have you responded to Jesus' authority? Have you held off on following him because you're hesitant to accept his authority? Maybe you're open to the idea of Jesus being an admirable ethical example, and maybe even a savior of some type, but you've had cold feet when it comes to calling him your Lord. Maybe you've bought the lie that Satan sold to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The lie that God's authority is restrictive and oppressive and unjust. When in reality, embracing God's authority over us is freeing and life-giving and right. If that's you, repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Turn to Christ for forgiveness. Follow him the way Levi did. Be healed by him, the way the paralytic and the man with the withered hand did. Rest in him. Embrace him as your Lord. And maybe you already have believed the gospel. You have repented of your sin. Maybe at least some of them. But if you're honest, you're having a difficult time giving Jesus authority over every area of your life. You might give him an hour of your time on Sunday morning, three out of every four weeks or so. But the truth is that you're still clutching to your goals, your plans, your dreams, your desires, and your priorities. Rather than submitting all of it to Jesus' power, Jesus' authority, and Jesus' lordship. Well, if that's you, you are called to repentance and faith as well. There is no area of our lives that Jesus does not have a claim to. So may we repent of our sin and trust him enough to turn ourselves completely over to him. To place ourselves under his authority and his lordship. In the verses we've read today, Jesus has referred to himself as son of man, Lord of the Sabbath. He's implied that he is greater than David. Those are all claims to power and authority that the religious leaders and you and I can't make. And if we did, the scribes and the Pharisees would be correct to accuse us of blasphemy. But Jesus' power and authority are not only seen in the things he's done in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John chapters 1 and 2. But they're also seen in what comes later. Jesus has authority over the Satan who led Judas to betray him. 
He has authority over the worldly powers that hung him on the cross. He has authority over the sins of others that he bore on that cross. And he even has authority over death itself. Because death could not hold him. So if you believe all of this is true, repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Give Jesus the power and authority he deserves. Power and authority over every nook, every cranny of your heart, your mind, your words, your deeds, and your life. Give him authority as Lord, because that's who he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the gospel of Mark and the truth that it teaches us. The truth about Jesus's power, the truth about Jesus's authority. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us, strengthen us, humble us, convict us, move us to give ourselves over to Jesus's authority. To give him authority over our lives that he has every rightful claim to. I pray that we would not just look to Jesus as a good teacher, not just look to Jesus as a good example, not just look to Jesus as even a savior, but that we would look to Jesus as Lord, that we would look to him as king, that we would look to him as master, and that we would give him the power and the authority over our lives that king and master and Lord deserves. Father, thank you for Jesus, what he did, helping paralytics walk and healing people with withered hands. All these miraculous works that display his power and display his authority. But ultimately, we thank you for the cross and the resurrection. And Father, we look forward to the day when he will return, when his power and authority will be so clearly seen once again on earth as it is in heaven. Again, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.